Hi, and welcome to Seen and Unseen Aloud. As we draw near the end of the year, the team here at Seen and Unseen Aloud have taken a look back over favourite articles that have appeared either on the Seen and Unseen Aloud podcast or on the Seen and Unseen website. Sit back and enjoy a curated stroll down memory lane and see if we've chosen your top picks. This Christmas compilation has been put together by me, Natalie Garrett, the narrator of Seen and Unseen Aloud. I love reading all the articles for Seen and Unseen Aloud, but I'm always drawn into a good story. I particularly enjoyed the human drama of a campfire encounter. What a campfire encounter teaches about making enemies and building empathy. In her book, Shalom Sisters, Living Wholeheartedly in a Broken World, my dear friend and peacemaking conspirator Osheta Moore defines enemy as anyone or any group that exists beyond the reach of my empathy. I don't like the idea that I have enemies. I prefer to congratulate myself for crossing divides into transforming relationships with those who have been marginalised by power. I certainly don't like her suggestion that there are any people or groups of people that exist beyond the reach of my empathy. For it asserts that I play a role in constructing my enemies, and that, as John A. Powell argues, my circle of human concern is far too small. Not long ago, I was confronted by both my expertise in constructing enemies and the limits of my empathy's reach. It was the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic and a time saturated with upheaval. Migrant and refugee communities were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. The black lives of Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd had been prematurely extinguished by white vigilantes and law enforcement. A next racial revolution was at hand and I was privileged to be a part of political advocacy efforts, direct non-violent action and creative civil disobedience. I had been shot twice by non-lethal rounds while holding a non-violent line between protesters and law enforcement with fellow clergy, giving me a tangible experience of absorbing state-sanctioned violence on behalf of those who have been for generations. In local protests, white militia groups would regularly descend in acts of intimidation with diesel trucks, offensive flags and guns. While I was contending with those disadvantaged by inequitable uses of power, I didn't realise that I was fabricating a new enemy. After months of this, I and my family were fatigued and in dire need of a change of scenery, so we loaded up our camper and embarked upon an off-the-grid adventure in the wild wonderland that is US America's Pacific Northwest. We set up camp next to a high alpine lake and were thrilled to have the entire place to ourselves. My enthusiasm waned as the sound of a diesel engine drew near our camp, My joy evaporated when an enormous truck towing a camper trailer stickered with brash political statements parked right next to us. In my mind, our tranquillity had been invaded by folks of the other political persuasion who clearly had no regard for the unknown dangers of COVID-19. Without even seeing their faces, 
I concluded that these were the ones who stood on the side of the very injustice I was fighting against. In my daughter's mind, we had some new neighbours to build relationships with. Within moments, she introduced herself and volunteered to organise a water adventure with her brothers and their two kids. For hours, the five of them built friendships while I deepened my fabricated narrative about who these people were and why they were parked right next to us. I'd like to say that we crossed over to their camp and introduced ourselves, but I can't. Rather, it was the two adults from their camp that crossed over to ours. They wanted to meet the parents of the extraordinary young woman who lived with such relational intention. As they drew near, my fabrication seemed to be confirmed. Both of them wore T-shirts plastered with American flags, guns and imagery that boosted their preference for law enforcement over black lives. His and her lower lips bulged with wads of tobacco and they both wore handguns on their hips. They introduced themselves and proceeded to rave about my daughter, which softened my heart toward them. While in conversation, I could sense that he was evaluating my camp. Eventually, he shared his two observations. First, he saw my bow. I had recently taken up archery with the intention of learning how to hunt for elk in the forests of my homeland. I liked the idea of ethically harvesting meat for my family. I knew that I needed a lot of practice in order to be successful. I had brought my bow with me so that I could practice, and he indicated that he had brought his bow as well. Second, he saw that I had an insignificant amount of firewood for the length of time we'd be camping. With a grin, he declared that he hadn't brought any firewood. Then, after motioning to the fallen trees around us, mentioned he had a chainsaw instead. I invited him to shoot his bow with me. He offered to cut more firewood for us. A nominal invitation and the offer of generosity sparked an uncommon friendship that is transforming me. Our family spent the weekend together, sharing meals, extended fireside conversations and wilderness adventures. We shot arrows at targets and I heard tales of his elk hunting adventures. At the conclusion of our not-so-solitary camping trip, I asked him if he'd be willing to teach me how to hunt elk. He responded with an emphatic yes and invited me to join him in the woods one month from then. Thirty days later, the two of us met in what seemed to be the fusion of a mythical jungle with a magical pine forest it was dark and steep, and the bush was impossibly thick. For hours we hiked together up and down mountains. He was the teacher and I was the student. That evening we found ourselves around another fire, preparing our food together yet again. With our meal plated, he opened our next conversation with this. So I've been researching you online. He proceeded to share with me that he had seen images of me in protests and war zones with political leaders, movement leaders and faith leaders. He had read many of my reflections about peace and justice and saw that I had even written a book about it. He closed with, I gotta know, what are you, FBI, CIA? <laughs> After I had a good laugh, 
I explained more about who I am, what I do, why I do it, and how my faith is the fuel behind all of it. As I did, it dawned on him that I represented those on the other side of his political and ideological persuasion. At one point, he leaned back from the fire, his nine-millimetre pistol glistening with its reflection, and declared to me that he was an avowed three-percenter. In the US, three-percenter is a term utilised by white militia groups based on the myth that only three percent of settlers were willing to pick up arms and fight for independence during the Revolutionary War. It is a designation for those who are willing to pick up arms again when they sense that their rights and advantages are being trodden upon. After his declaration, he asked, Is that going to be a problem? I didn't perceive his question as a threat, but rather as a next invitation. I understood him as wondering aloud if the divide between his ideology and mine was too expansive for us to continue building a friendship. I responded with this. Your convictions and the way they shape your life are different from my convictions and the way they shape mine. Yet I sense that we both wonder if bridging the gap between us into a friendship is better than remaining enemies on opposite sides. For us to do so would likely make ours the most uncommon friendship in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, if you are. With a nod, he leaned back and we finished our dinner, reflecting on all that we had experienced that day. With the rise of the sun, we were back on the trails, but the conversation had shifted. He began to open up his life to me with surprising vulnerability, and I did the same. We began to recognise that what we shared in common far outweighed our differences. As the miles grew, so did the reach of my empathy. Three years later, our friendship continues to deepen and it's transforming me. I find myself reflecting frequently on Jesus' revolutionary teaching on enemy love. I'm inspired by the notion that Jesus was the only one who ever took us beyond convenient understandings of neighbour love to love of enemy. I'm learning that in order to love my enemy, I must first understand my enemy. To do so requires that I confess my efficiency at fabricating enemies, lament the limits of my empathy, and dare to cross over any divide equipped with curiosity and compassion. I always enjoy reading Belle Tyndall's articles. I love her style that is both friendly and insightful. Her piece about Jacob Collier's concerts bringing strangers into a place of belonging brought a tear to my eye. Strangers and the Sound of Belonging by Belle Tyndall I had an empty couple of minutes to play with, so mostly due to muscle memory, I found myself opening my Instagram app. Habitually, I do this multiple times a day, and mostly to no profound avail. But this one day, something caught my eye and sent me down a spiral of curiosity. And judging by how astronomically viral it went, it seems I was not spiralling alone. 
It was footage of Jacob Collier performing in Rome. Jacob is a singer, songwriter, jazz instrumentalist and general music prodigy. But that's not the most captivating thing about him. The Collier phenomena has erupted because of the way he turns his audience of strangers into a perfectly tuned, beautifully united choir. And this particular night in Rome, he managed to steer this audience to sing beyond the major scale and onto the far more complex chromatic scale, something he's been working towards for years. The most striking thing about this minute-long clip is not the beautifully raw sound, although it really is something to behold, but what this sound is communicating, a tangible sense of belonging. We each know how it feels to belong, and we are also acutely aware of the inverse, how it feels when a sense of belonging is lacking, and feelings of isolation creep in and make themselves at home in its absence. But for the sake of clarity, perhaps a working definition would be helpful at this point. And for that, I turn to the psychology dictionary. The PD defines belonging as a feeling of being taken in and accepted as part of a group, thus fostering a sense of belonging. It also relates to being approved of and accepted by society in general, also called belongingness. The notion of belonging or belongingness has been well studied and still its intrinsic power is staggering to consider. According to research published by the Australian Journal of Psychology, belonging is a universal and fundamental human need, one that may be just as important as food, shelter and physical safety. So intrinsic is it that the lack of belonging resulting in acute loneliness, is attributed to a 26% increase in the risk of premature mortality. This has led the World Health Organization to officially recognise isolation as a determinant of health, placing it in the same category as smoking, physical inactivity and excessive alcohol consumption. Further research suggests that our brains perceive and subsequently react to social pain in the same way they are designed to react to physical pain. Releasing opioids and other instinctive painkillers when encountering a lack of belonging, our brains are detecting literal pain within us. As humans, we are susceptible to suffering social injuries, and it seems that the subconscious parts of our brains take those injuries much more seriously than their conscious counterparts. Subsequently, when we speak of a person's need to belong, we're speaking of a need that has significant mental, emotional, spiritual, behavioural and physical repercussions. A need that is intersectional, if you will. It is a central construct at the core of our humanity and a defining variable in how we perceive reality. It could be suggested, considering all of this, that human beings were simply made to belong. The necessity of belonging is woven into our makeup. Over the final scene of the 2009 film World's Greatest Dad, Robin Williams' voice delivers a line that is so profound it lingers in your mind long after the end credits have finished rolling. He says, I used to think the worst thing in life would be to end up all alone. 
it's not. The worst thing in life is to end up with people who make you feel alone. There's a staggering wisdom in that. Namely, that belonging is not the inevitable outcome of simply getting people into one room. That's the difference between the Collier concert, where the audience are truly belonging to each other, if only for an evening, and the coffee shop where I'm sitting right now, filled with people using laptops and headphones as a form of defence against the threat of small talk, each of us belonging only to ourselves. If it were the case that proximity equated to belonging, urbanisation and the subsequent squeezing of populations into close quarters would have surely deterred the epidemic of loneliness that the West currently finds itself in. And yet it is not uncommon for neighbour and stranger to be identities that coexist. And what about the role of social media? Access to one another has never been so readily available. The world has never been so small and its population so close. And yet, what social media so often provides is the affirmation and amplification of feelings of isolation. No, proximity alone is not the answer. Will van der Hart writes that people don't just want to be with other people, they want to belong with them. Christianity has a lot to say on the subject of belonging and belongingness. The anonymous author of the creation literature, the chapters which act as the start line for the biblical narrative, notes how the only thing that was unsatisfactory about our freshly created world was the initial isolation of humanity. Such solitude was at odds with the blueprint for human flourishing and defied our design as intrinsically relational beings. The Christian faith therefore offers an explanation to humanity's fundamental need to belong. It presents a spiritual why behind the aforementioned neurological findings. The biblical narratives, the psychological research, they are united, if you pardon the pun, in the assessment of the human condition. Namely that belonging is simply a non-negotiable. It's buried inside our biology. So, perhaps it's no wonder Jacob Collier has caught the world's attention. He's providing a simple soundtrack to one of our most ingrained needs. It seems that what has long been communicated through ancient spiritual texts and more recently affirmed through endless psychological theories can also be communicated with a simple, harmonious sound. To watch that clip is to watch thousands of strangers Belong. Belong to the room. Belong to the moment. Belong to the sound. In 1948, author and theologian A.W. Tozer pondered the nature of unity and human connection. He asked, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? If ever we were looking for an answer to this profound question, we need to look no further than Jacob Collier's audience and their sound of belonging.
back in the day when I worked as an actor, I was in several Shakespeare plays and I got to speak some of the most beautiful scripting in the English language. I also got to delve into the moral, ethical and religious landscapes which the Bard inhabits. So I greatly appreciated Anthony Baker's piece on justice and mercy as seen on Shakespeare's stage. How Shakespeare Seasoned Justice with Mercy by Anthony Baker In order to act with mercy towards someone, must I forego a sense of justice? If I decide to act justly, have I decided to leave mercy behind? These are questions of philosophers and theologians. They also provide some of the thickest philosophical and theological ponderings of William Shakespeare. A studied contemplation of mercy and justice does not, of course, originate with the Elizabethan playwright. For as long as humans have pondered how to order their civic spaces, they have puzzled over the demands of each. Around 500 BCE, Rabbi Yehuda is recorded as having said that God spends three hours a day on a throne of justice before getting up and crossing over to a throne of mercy, on which he spends an equal length of each day. 200 years later, when Plato devoted his most famous dialogue to the question of justice, he gave only the slightest nod to mercy, acknowledging that the just ruler would need a reputation for generosity. Though many of Shakespeare's plays notice the interaction or lack of interaction of these two qualities, The Tempest and nearly all of the history plays, for instance, he penned two for what seems to me the explicit purpose of letting these two ancient enemies fight it out on stage. I'll focus on one of these and return briefly below to the other. The first, Measure for Measure, takes its title from a line from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is a signature move of the Bard to take a religiously charged line, doctrine or even person and make theatre out of them. While some have argued that this was all he was doing with religion or theology, I have suggested that he's doing more. He's mining the depths of faith language to see if he can find gems that we might be missing if we only pay attention to the identity politics of Reformation-era England. Grace is grace despite of all controversy, one character in this play says. That could be the tagline for Shakespeare's theological interventions. We see Shakespeare having some of his typical fun with religion in Measure for Measure. The Duke of Vienna gives away his power in order to go abroad, as he claims, for a piece of international politics. In fact, he sneaks back into the city immediately, now disguised as a friar, a member of a religious order like the Franciscans. He tells the friar who lends him the robes that he is doing this because he has made an irresponsible practice of letting the city's strict laws and biting statutes slip. He has, that is to say, been more of a merciful father than a just ruler. He doesn't want to unbind this tied-up justice himself, since he fears this would cause his people to question his integrity. But you've always been so merciful before now. So, he contrives a plan to deputise one of the nobles, Lord Angelo, to be the hammer of justice in his stead. He also hints that there are other reasons for his disguise. I'll come back to that bit of foreshadowing. Angelo immediately finds an episode in need of his firm hand. 
a gentleman named Claudio has got his girlfriend Julietta pregnant. There are in fact circumstances that seem worth considering. The two are engaged and are only waiting for her to receive her dowry to get that arranged before they go to church. But Angelo will not hear of clemency. He is severe, one noble remarks. This is as it should be, a wise old lord responds. Mercy is not mercy that oft looks so, he says, perhaps angling gently at a critique of the Duke's mode of operation. At this point in the play, we have our two adversarial qualities in neat, separate containers. One container, called the Duke, is only merciful. But this container must be removed from the state so that the other, called Angelo, can display its contents of merciless justice. But as this is Shakespeare, things quickly begin to get messy. Angelo turns out to be hiding secrets. The old lord, having hinted that the Duke is over-merciful, now suggests that Angelo is being a bit hard on Claudio. He cautiously suggests that, had time and place given opportunity, Angelo himself might have come to the wrong side of the law. Angelo's response says more perhaps than he means to. What's open made to justice, that justice seizes. Justice only deals with what it can see, in other words. We pick up a jewel on the ground, only when it catches the light. Buried or soiled, we walk straight past it or even trample it. This is our first hint of Shakespeare's subversion of the polarised containers. Listening to Antonio's speech, we've begun to wonder if, lacking the slightest trace of mercy, justice doesn't in fact begin to look a little unfair. And then we see Angelo acting on his theory. Claudio's sister comes to him to beg for her brother's life. Angelo is quickly captivated by her beauty and soon offers her a deal. If she will meet him for sex in the garden, secretly of course, so that the crime cannot be unjust, he will let Claudio free. This offer obviously shows the rot in his theory of justice as he is forming a contract, a just bond, around blackmail and rape. But it also ruins mercy, since his proposed pardon of Claudio is not merciful at all, but simply the meeting of one end of a just bargain. Our neat containers have nearly dissolved around their contents. Mercy is not mercy that oft looks so, but justice is not justice that only looks so. Justice as merciless as Angelo's turns out to be unjust, in the same way that mercy without justice turns up bereft of mercy. This is why the Duke left, and it's why Angelo fails as his deputy. But the Duke has returned, and now we begin to see what his secret purposes are. He goes to visit Claudio for confession and counsel, and also goes to Claudio's sister for comfort and advice. Here is one of the delightful places where Shakespeare plays with religious stereotypes. The controversy of grace that I mentioned above is for Shakespeare's audience an all too familiar one over whether God saves us through our works and so through a contractual justice or through grace, which is to say through an act of unearned mercy. The Catholic Church was generally, though not often accurately, 
associated with the former, the Protestants with the latter. But here is a Catholic friar, or at least a disguised one, who enters as the personified mercy. The Duke slash friar devises a plan, and nearly goes as awry as the more famous friar's plan in Romeo and Juliet, which is to say that our comedy nearly becomes a tragedy. I won't give away the ending, if you've forgotten or never made it through, but I'll offer a hint. The Duke, on his return, is no longer an embodiment of unjust mercy as he was before. Now he sees clearly that true mercy is just, and true justice is mercy. The two must kiss, as the psalm puts it. His clever idea for resolution is all about allowing mercy and justice to exchange a kiss. The more familiar play in which Shakespeare lets us watch the battle of justice and mercy is The Merchant of Venice. Here we find the story of maybe the strangest contract made since the dawn of commerce. If a merchant defaults on his loan, the moneylender will claim an entitlement to a pound of flesh. Is this mutually agreed upon contract unjust or simply merciless? The religious fun is rampant in this play as well. The lender is a Jew and the merchant is a Christian. But if the Jew's strict call for commercial exactitude gets tempered by his excessive love for his daughter, and the Christian's supposed reputation for grace is in fact an excuse to practice favouritism. Eventually, we have on stage such a confusion of religious stereotypes that someone asks which character is which. Well, the poor merchant can't pay, as we knew already at the moment he made the foolish contract. And so Portia, this play's mercy persona, comes, also in disguise, from the fairy tale land of Belmont, with a clever trick to save her beloved merchant. While her solution involves a highly questionable interpretation of the law, she manages to persuade the ruling authority. As Portia is making her case, she offers one of the most explicitly theological speeches in all of Shakespeare's works. Earth's rulers might think they are most godlike when they enact the law with authority, she says. But mercy is above this sceptred sway. In fact, mercy is an attribute of God himself. She concludes, much as the Duke concludes, that earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Shakespeare, had he indeed been for all time, as a contemporary put it, would be celebrating his own 459th birthday this week. In plays like these, we see displayed one of his most enduring gifts to us, the ability to play with the familiar and make it strange and new. He gives us philosophical and religious figures and themes, and then just as we assume we know who and what they are, he surprises us by showing what sort of dish you can make if you but swirl the ingredients. Our best efforts at justice, whether of the personal or political sort, must be seasoned by mercy. Our acts of mercy, if not ultimately just acts, will turn out to be merciless. Would we have noticed this if no one had let it happen on stage in front of us? Thank you for listening to Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If so, 
Perhaps there's someone you're in touch with over Christmas who might enjoy it too. Maybe you could share it with them. Wherever you are, and whatever Christmas looks like for you, from all at Seen and Unseen Aloud, we hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.